This is a chapter in which, as we've already noted, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Christian and his conduct. We've emphasized this many times, that the Christian life is exactly that. It's a life to be lived. It's not just a profession to make, but it is a life that we live to God's glory. And therefore here there is an exhortation to faithfulness in the work of Christ. He speaks from verse 2 down to verse 6 about prayer, the importance of prayer, but also about the importance of Christian conduct, especially in relation to the lost. And included in that, the very important matter of our words, the things that we say and how we say them. There's an exhortation to faithfulness in the work of Christ. Also later in the chapter, as we shall see, there's an exemplification of faithfulness. An exemplification of faithfulness in God's service as represented in the lives of certain notable believers. And you'll see their names mentioned from verse 7 where it talks about Tychicus. Right down through these verses, Onesimus, Aristarchus. Marcus, or as we know him better, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, John Mark. Uh, Barnabas was his uncle. And there are others that are mentioned as well. Faithful servants of the Lord. And they are set forth by Paul here as an example of faithfulness in Christian service. Now we have already noted, when we talked about prayer, the exhortation to faithfulness in supplication. How important it is to be persistent in prayer, to keep on, continue in prayer, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Remembering to pray for the servants of God. Paul said, with all, verse 3, praying also for us. Don't forget the ministers. Don't forget the missionaries. Don't forget those on the front line. Remember us in prayer, that God would open to us a door of utterance. That He might help us to speak the mystery of Christ, to preach the gospel. That's the reason he said, I'm in prison, for which I am also in bonds. This is why I'm in bonds, because I dared to preach Christ. But pray for us that the Lord would help us, even in this situation, to see doors of opportunity to make Christ known. That we might make the gospel manifest and speak as we ought to speak. Now we come to the matter of a Christian And the need for faithfulness in society. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Those that are on the outside. Redeeming the time. Here he's speaking to Colossian believers. And he's reminding them that in this world there must be a propriety in their walk. They must walk correctly. Now this kind of terminology Paul has used in the book of Ephesians, there are several references there to the walk of the believer. I'm sure that you can pick those out. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Then when you come on down into chapter 5, verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved 
us. In between there, in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Then you come into chapter 5, and he says in verse 8, You were sometime darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And finally, in verse number 16, or verse number 15, along with verse 16, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. A propriety in their walk. The walk of a Christian is just another way of talking about his behavior or his manner of life. Your walk in the world is the way you live. The manner of your living, your lifestyle. And the Christian's walk should be, and it is really, the outworking of that which he professes. This is why, for example, he says to the Ephesians, You were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't be walking as children of darkness anymore, but be walking as children of light. Again, when he talked about walking worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called in Ephesians 4 verse 1, he really means that now that you're a Christian, you have a Christian calling, you are to live up to that. You are to walk in accordance with that profession. This is what the Christian is to do. The Christian's walk is the outworking of that which he professes. Now turn with me to another New Testament epistle. It's 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we read in verses 6 and 7 words that really fit in with what Paul's saying to the Colossians. 1 John 1 verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, that's with the Lord, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that's us with God and God with us, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. We're not to walk in darkness. We are to walk in the light. Go further to chapter 2 of First John. And in verse 6, this is what it says. He that saith, he abideth in him, that's in Christ, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. We are to copy Christ. Now let me hasten to add that by copying Christ, you don't get saved. There was a book written called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis. There are people who think that if you try to be like Jesus in the world, that that will be enough to get you to heaven. Well, it won't. It won't. But these are words, remember, that are written to believers. These are words that are written to people who have been redeemed by Christ, who have been justified by the work of Christ. And they are encouraged to walk like Him, to follow after Him, to follow His steps. Again, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, Paul was writing there about the same subject to that church. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. That ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So you put all these verses together, walking worthy of the calling or the vocation that you've been given. Walking in love, walking circumspectly, walking as children of light, walking not in darkness. Walking even as he walked. And here, walking worthy of God. These are all ways of describing Christian behavior. It does matter how we live in the world. The two men in the Old Testament, of whom the Bible says they walked with God. The first one was Noah. And the second one was Enoch. Well, we can turn those around and say it was Enoch and then Noah. But go back in your Bible there to the book of Genesis. And you'll see the references that I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24. Obviously, chronologically, Enoch comes before Noah. So here's what it says about him. Genesis 5 verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now just back up a couple of verses. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. The interesting thing about this is there was a time that we can mark when Enoch began to walk with God. It is not true to say that Enoch walked with God from his birth. He didn't. There was a time that came when he began to walk with God. And we would certainly speak of that in relation to our own selves and say we did not walk with God our whole lives until the moment we were converted. When we came to Christ for salvation and called upon his name to save us, that's when we began to walk with God. Sometimes I'll ask people, when did you become a Christian? And I've heard people give me this answer. Well, I've always been a Christian. So I know right away they're not a Christian. Someone who tells me I always was a Christian, I know that that's not true. Because none of us is born a Christian. You have to become a Christian by coming to Christ, by a conversion experience. It doesn't have to be a big flash of lightning in the sky or a funny feeling in your spine or tingling at the end of your fingers. It doesn't have to be some sort of a weird out-of-body experience. But there has to be that moment when you come by faith to Jesus Christ and ask Him to save you. And from that moment on, you begin to walk with God. That's how it was with Enoch. He walked with God. The interesting thing that we must observe is that Enoch lived in a day when nobody else walked with God. There was a wicked generation. And one preacher made the observation that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He said one day God called Enoch to go for a walk with him. And he said Enoch... We're closer to my home than we are to yours. Just come on home with me. 
And that's what the Lord did. He translated him. And when you compare the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you learn something there about Enoch. And it is that after he died, they sent out a search party to look for him. They didn't know where he was. The Bible tells us, Hebrews 11 verse 4, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. When it says he was not found, that means they were looking for him. Where's, where's Enoch? Where's he gone to? Well, the Lord took him home. Because God had translated him. Why? For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was a man who walked with God when others did not. That proves to me that no matter how difficult it is in the world for a Christian, you can walk with God. The Lord can enable you to walk with him in the most adverse circumstances. In in the worst of circumstances, when nobody else is a Christian in your place of employment, you can walk with God. When nobody else is a Christian in your house, you can walk with God. The Lord is able to help you. Now, let's think about Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. He's another one who walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. It tells us in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. He walked with God. It's a wonderful testimony to have that you walk with God. You're in fellowship with Him. You're in communion with Him. You talk to Him, He talks to you. You're walking properly. Paul describes it in Colossians here as a walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. That really is a consistent manner of life which speaks loudly and eloquently for Christ. Now, we understand that we're not perfect and we're not going to be perfect And we're going to make mistakes. And we will sometimes say the wrong thing. And we will sometimes do the wrong thing. We're not perfect. We're not in heaven yet. But we can be consistent. So that when people encounter us, over a lengthy period of time, they see this steady, consistent walk. And they think to themselves, well, I know that that man back ten years ago was like this. And he's still like this. I knew this lady 15 years ago and she's still like this today. She has a consistent, steady walk. It's not up and down. It's not way high and then way down low. It's steady, consistent walking with the Lord. That kind of a life speaks for Christ. Someone said, our feet tell the truth about what our lips profess. A mother one day spoke to her young son and said, Did you just walk across that muddy field? He said, No, Mom. The mother pointed down to his shoes, all caked with mud. How did that get there? Had to tell the truth. He did walk across that muddy field. The evidence was in his walk. 
Everywhere he went in the house, he's leaving a trail of mud behind him. You see, the evidence that we are the Lord's will be seen in the way that we walk, and the converse will also be the case. What does my walk tell people about me? Notice the people who are to be convinced by our walk. Them that are without. That's how Paul describes the unsaved. They're not inside, they're outside. They're without. When I was very young we learned a little chorus in Sunday school. One door and only one and yet its sides are two. The inside, the outside, on which side are you? One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside, on which side are you? There are those who are without. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. They're not part of the church. They're not part of the company of God's people. They're not saved. These are the people who are to be convinced by our walk. Those who are on the outside. They're out of Christ. And so in this sense, it does matter what people think and say about us. Now, I know there's a sense in which we shouldn't worry what people think or say. In other words, let's not be ashamed of Christ if they call you a Holy Joe or Square or some sort of name like that because you're a believer, you wear that as a badge of honor. You don't really care. You're not worried about your own reputation. However, there's a sense in which you do care. You care if people look at you and say, I don't think that person's a real Christian. That should really cause you to care. We ought to be concerned about what men and women think and say of us. You see, the world is observing Christians. They're watching. They're watching. I know there are people in this neighborhood and they watch people coming in and out of the doors of this church. They do. They see you arriving. They see you going into church. They see you coming out of church. I've had one or two people actually refer to that in speaking with me, one of the neighbours here one day mentioned about, I saw your people coming in and out, and they mentioned the conservative way that the ladies were dressed. And I thought, well, praise the Lord for that. They noticed. They noticed. Peter and John were being watched, weren't they? Acts 4 verse 13, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. People paid attention. They knew that these men were associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what walking in wisdom means. Behaving wisely. It means to live before men in the fear of God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do worldlings see me as a God-fearing individual? They ought to. See, your life and my life are preaching to people. My life gives forth a message and so does yours. What is the message that's being received by people? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1 and again verse 12 comes to mind here. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as, a, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk, there's it again, and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Keep at this. We've been speaking to you about how you ought to walk and how to please God. And I want you to abound in that. I want that to continue. But then look at verse 12. That ye may walk honestly. There it is again, your walk. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without. And that ye may have lack of nothing. That you'll have a reputation among men as being scrupulously honest. See, your life is being lived before God. Yes. We ought to think about how we walk and please God. But our lives are also being lived before men. Verse 12. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without. That we might have a conscience void of offence before God and men. Is what the apostle said. Are the people outside in the world who know you convinced that you are the genuine article? Are they convinced that you are a true bill, so to speak? You're not a dud. You're not a counterfeit. You're real. I had a conversation once with a man who was very skeptical, skeptical about the things of God. He said to me, I've met so many counterfeit Christians in my life, I don't even care to remember them all. This man was a store owner. Of course, they don't use dollars over there, they use pounds. But I said, um, did you ever get a counterfeit 20 pound note, 20 pound bill? Oh yeah, plenty of them. I said, so all the 20 pound notes that you get, you refuse them? You never, you never take any 20 pound notes from anyone? Oh no, of course I, I examine them and see if they're real or not and then I take them or refuse them if they're counterfeit. I said, well that's the way it is with Christians. They're counterfeit Christians, yes, but you know what you do? You examine, you examine them and see that there are plenty who are the genuine article. If I could use just a, an illustration from the banknotes, they have a watermark. They've got a mark on them. They've got marks that proves that they're genuine. I know that the currency in the United Kingdom, that used to be when you held a bill up to the light, there's a silver, a piece of silver that runs down through some of these bigger notes that proves the genuineness of it. There's a mark on the note. God's people have marks. And people can see then that we are what we say we are. Now, a good testimony is essential in all of God's people. It's essential in those who would oversee God's work. Especially. We know in 1 Timothy, it speaks about the elders. It speaks about those who are in leadership of the work of God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 7 puts it like this. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. That's it. The people outside. The unsaved. Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's the people who are to be convinced by our proper walk. There's the period which is to be considered regarding our walk. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. 
redeeming the time. You know the word redeeming means buying back. Buying back the time. Buying up every opportunity. Now there's something that's obvious right away and it is that time once gone cannot be recovered. You don't get time back. Once a day is over, that day is over. That time can't be lived over again. There are these silly movies that have been made in the past about people going back in time machines and going to different eras. It's a load of nonsense. It's science fiction. It's balderdash. There's no such thing. Time can't be recovered. It can't be lived over again. But we can seek to make each moment that we do live really count. Redeeming the time. Buying up the opportunities. For example, those opportunities that the Lord sets before us for faithful witness. You will be able to meet people who will engage you in conversation about spiritual things. You will be times have someone to ask you a question. And you will have an opportunity to answer that question. And the Lord will open up a big wide door for you to speak for Christ. Once when I was among my soccer buddies, one of them was talking to me about drinking. They always seem to come back to that same subject all the time. Why don't you drink? Did you never drink? I told him about my father who used to drink a lot before he got converted. Then he stopped drinking. I said, my dad quit drinking when he became a Christian. He said, what do you mean he became a Christian? Aren't we all Christians? Oh, what an open door. What a wide open opportunity. Aren't we all Christians? Simple answer, no we're not. And here's why we're not. I spent the next probably 30 minutes explaining to six or seven men standing there what it means to be a Christian. Now I don't mean to use myself as exhibit A all the time in witnessing. I don't mean to say that. But if you look for the opportunities, you can buy them up. The Lord will give you what my mother used to call blood-bought opportunities. Because the Lord means for you to speak. You feel that little voice inside your head, I should say something to this person about the Lord. You know what that is? That's not the devil. That's certainly not Satan. He's not encouraging you to witness to somebody or to give them your testimony. The Lord can help us to buy back the time in that way. How much precious time we waste. I speak to myself as much as anyone else. There is no bringing it back. But we can do something about the days ahead in the will of God. What a lovely promise is in Joel 2 verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. All those lost harvests. The Lord can give you one bumper harvest that makes up for ten lost harvests. That's redeeming the time. Buying back the time. Let us by the grace of God seek to make wise and sacred use of every opportunity for doing good, as one writer said. Buying up the opportunity for yourselves, letting no opportunity slip by you of saying and doing what may further the cause of God. There's the period that's to be considered. Redeeming the time. For obvious reasons, I've been caused to think in recent days of the, f- the very swift passing of time. 
Where do the years go to? Where do the years go to? Someone told me when you get to be 40 and they say you're over the hill, you get over the hill, you pick up speed. (laughs) I found that to be true. It's incredible. I think about the fact that by far the greater part of my life has been lived already. The greater part of my ministry is already behind me. That's a very sobering thing. Let us seek to do what we can in the time that we have to further the cause of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. Not only, however, does he talk about a propriety in their walk, but one other thing, and that is a purity in their words. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. There's a rule for our speech. A purity in their words is what Paul is referring to here. In the context, it surely relates to ungodly men. Surely. Because he's just said, walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. And then he says, let your speech be always with grace. So, it's really chiefly in our dealings with those that are not saved. Speaking to them of Christ and of the word of God in the proper manner. How important is our behavior? Yes, because our lives will dictate whether or not we can speak with authority to people about Christ. If the people you talk to think because of the life that you live that you're a hypocrite, you'll not be able to speak to them about the Lord. They'll not listen to you. But how vital are the words of the believer? As we've often said, the tongue is in a wet place and it slips so very easily. And there's a lot that the Bible has to say about the tongue. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said to them in chapter 4 and verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. So he deals there with truthfulness. But then he goes on in verse 29 of Ephesians 4, to say, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Oaths, curses, taking the Lord's name in vain, dirty jokes, all of that should never be in the mouth of a Christian. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Then you go into chapter 5 of Ephesians and verse 4 says, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient but rather giving of thanks. Foolish talking. There's our words. The book of James is the go-to portion that we always think about in relation to the tongue. James chapter 3 is really a great polemic on the tongue and on 
our words and our lips and the things that come out of our mouths. Paul is saying here to the Colossians that the Christians should use gracious speech. Gracious speech. What is that? Well, it's the kind of language that results from the operation of God's grace in the heart. Remember how the Bible teaches us that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. You know why people utter the oaths that they do and the bad language that they do? Because that's what's in their hearts. That's what's in their hearts and it comes out of their mouths. What comes out of your mouth is what's inside you. When I was a kid, one of the first things the doctor used to say to me was, Open your mouth. Show me your tongue. Uh, and they put this, what looked like a popsicle stick on your tongue. You remember that? I used to gag every time the doctor would do that. Hated it. Show me your tongue. That's what God says to his people. Show me your tongue. I'll be able to tell a lot by your tongue. There are doctors who can tell that you have some sort of malady just by putting your tongue out. They can tell by your tongue something's not right. Your tongue may be coated. It may have spots on it. Something is wrong. There's something wrong when our speech is wrong. Paul says our speech should be with grace. Seasoned with salt. In the old days, salt was always used as a purifier. When they travelled overseas, even the pilgrims that came to this country, they brought meat with them. That meat was packed in barrels of salt to stop the meat from putrefying. It would have gone bad, but for the salt. Salt is a a purifier. It is a preservative. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Salt prevents corruption. So no corrupt communication will proceed out of your mouth if it's seasoned with salt. Our words must be pure. The great thing about salt is that it has flavor too. It has flavor. Salt enhances the taste of foods. There are some things that are so bland and horrible without salt. Just put a little bit of salt. Oh, what a difference it makes. Our speech is to be attractive. And it should act as a means of drawing people to the Lord. And to think about his word. Notice again here in the context. He says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. That ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. I think again it's in the context of witnessing. People will ask you questions. People will challenge your faith. As a Christian, you have to expect to be challenged. People are not just going to accept what you're saying, you know, because you say it. They'll challenge you. They'll ask you to give a reason of the hope that lies within you. Why do you believe this? Why do you think that? That you may know how you ought to answer every man. This is speaking the right word to the right person at the right moment. As it says in the proverb, these words are like apples of gold and pictures of silver. A word fitly spoken. Seasoned with salt to the heathen actually meant to be full of wit and clever remarks. Sparkling conversation. 
But in the case of the heathens, this usually degenerated into the kind of language that Paul condemned, which was filthy communication and foolish jesting. The believer's speech ought to indicate a work of grace has taken place within his heart. If I might be pardoned a personal reference, when my dad gave his testimony, he used to speak of it this all the time, that before he was saved, he had a very bad tongue. He used to drop the F-bomb every sentence almost, according to him. Bad language all the time. When he got saved, that all stopped. And of course he got saved before I was born, so I never remember once, not even once in my entire life, hearing an oath coming out of my father's mouth. Not once. Why? Because the grace of God works. The grace of God works. It changes people. And when you have the right kind of speech, it's an indicator of a work of grace having taken place within the heart. And of course the converse is also the case. You hear people all the time, you know the whole little computer jargon, OMG. We're at it all the time. You hear it all the time. You see it all the time. People taking the Lord's name in vain. The name of Christ, the name of God. Sometimes every sentence. Every time they're exclaiming about something, it's, oh my, and then taking the Lord's name in vain. Whenever you get saved, that stops. That stops. Like, right away it stops. Because the grace of God works. And so that person will begin to speak wise words, words that are seasoned with salt, truthful words, wholesome words, words that edify. And so this sixth verse is a general exhortation that we do well to heed as believers at all times. That's why it uses the word always. Let your speech be always, not most of the time, not some of the time, always with grace. Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. My mother used to say, son, ask the Lord to guard the door of your lips. She knew me better than most guard the door of your lips ask the Lord to set a guard by your lips the rabbins used to say that God put a double guard upon our tongues he gave us lips and he gave us teeth real or false to keep the tongue in may the Lord help us remember our Lord Jesus Christ he is our example isn't he in everything you know what it says about him? They wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. When they heard the Savior speak, they thought, this man is different from all others that we've ever met. This man speaks differently from every other man. He speaks with authority. He speaks the truth. His speech is gracious. May the Lord make us to be like Christ in this way. May the Lord help us in our walk. May the Lord help us in our words to glorify Him. Amen.